Well, good morning. It's so great to have you here. And I want to say good morning to everyone who is joining us online at home. And I also want to say hello to all of you who are in the overflow room in the chapel this morning. If you yell amen really loud, I may be able to hear you. Those who are at home, you're going to have to yell really loud if you're going to be heard in all of this. But it's great to have all of you here in all of these different places as we have a chance to worship Jesus this morning. Last week when I stood up here, I told you right off the bat that I was battling some food poisoning and asked you to pray for me. And it was a challenge last week. You guys, I can't tell you how great it is to feel normal this week. Right? Like when, when you... Yeah, anything you go through, no matter how small it is, when you get back to normal, you have a new appreciation for normal in the midst of that, don't you? Absolutely. It's great to be up here and to be able to spew at you and not spew at you in all of this. I want to invite you to turn to our passage for today. That's 1 Peter chapter 5. It is the last sermon in our sermon series today. We have been going through the book of 1 Peter, which is brought to you by the letter H. Uh, anyone remember Sesame Street? Every episode was brought to you by a letter or a number, and the book of 1 Peter has been brought to you by the letter H. We started off right away in the first few verses, recognizing that even though you may be going through incredibly difficult circumstances and facing challenges of all kinds, that because of Jesus, we have this astounding hope. Isn't that our first H? Right? We have this living hope in Jesus Christ, because we've been called to be a part of his family. And because we're a part of his family, we look forward to this amazing inheritance that is ours, that is kept where? In heaven, right? That's our second age. Our hope is in heaven. Our inheritance is kept in heaven. The book of 1 Peter has reminded us again and again that we're just exiles or sojourners here in this life. And we're living for heaven where our citizenship is. And because of that, we have one great aim in, that, in this life, and it is the third H. We aim to be holy. First Peter has said we're, we're to be holy as he is holy and has called us again and again to be holy in every aspect of our life. And now as we come to the final chapter in the book of First Peter, what we see is this final H that is related to our holiness, and that is humility. First Peter chapter 5 is going to be all about humility. So I invite you to turn there in your Bibles, your devices, and we're going to see as we start this chapter that the first call is for leaders in the church who are humble. Verse 1 says this, so I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Who is Peter addressing here in this first verse? The elders. The primary leadership office within the local church is called elder. But that's not the only name that it goes by in the New Testament. And we can get confused if we don't understand that the primary leadership office within the church that's referred to in the New Testament is actually referred to by three different names in the New Testament. What are those three names? First is overseer, episcopi or episkopos. The second is elder that we see here, presbuteros. And then the third is pastor. Now, that Greek word for pastor actually just means shepherd or caretaker of sheep. 
And so there is no actual word for pastor as we may think of it. The Greek word simply means a caretaker of sheep that we, that we think of as pastor. And these three words are used synonymously in the New Testament for this one leadership office within the church. We see that within a couple of passages within the New Testament. In Acts chapter 20, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. Right? Who does he send for? He called the elders of the church to come to him. And then a few verses later, we read, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. There's our word, episkopos. They are overseers of the church. To care for, that's our Greek word for shepherd or pastor. Right? Poiamen, right? Care for or pastor the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. And so these are elders who are overseers, who are pastoring the church within the passage that we're looking at today. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd, there's our word for pastor, pastor the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, there's our word for overseer. And so we see in the scriptures that we have one primary leadership office within the church that is referred to by three different names, overseer, elder, and pastor. This can be confusing if we think there's three primary leadership offices within the church, but that's not what we see here. One office that has three different names in it. Now, what is the job of an overseer? What's what's the job of an elder, the job of a pastor? It starts with leading the church. They're to shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. They're to be shepherds. And as a shepherd leads the sheep, so an overseer is to lead the flock. Exercising oversight is how they pastor. That's how they lead, by overseeing. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17 says, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of a double honor especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. What is the elder's job? It is to rule within the church. And as this this verse points out, some do it well and some don't. Right? There are those who do it well. They're worthy of a double honor. There are also those, by implication, that don't do it well. But their job, the job of every overseer, is to rule within the church. Now, that's unsettling to us. We, We don't like the word rule. So so what does it mean that they are to rule over the church or rule within the church? Well, the word that is used here in 1 Timothy 5 for rule is the same word that's used in the description of the character of an overseer in 1 Timothy chapter 3 when it says they are to manage their household well. They are to rule or manage their household well. It's the same word that's used here in 1 Timothy chapter 5. And so the parallel here is that as a good father oversees his household, leads it and manages it well, so the overseer is the parent of the church, leading, guiding, and overseeing the children of the church well, right? The whole flock of the church well. And so the the first job of an overseer, an elder, a pastor, is that they are to lead the church, 
Now that first task of leading is connected to the second job of an overseer in the church, and that is to teach the church. It is an overseer's job to teach the church. Titus chapter 1 verse 9 says about an overseer, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. What is the job of an overseer? They are the doctrinal keepers for the church. They are responsible for the teaching of the church. It doesn't mean they have to do all of the teaching within the church, but they are responsible for the teaching of the church, and they are the ones who are to make sure that false teaching never takes root in the church. And they don't just teach the word of God dryly, saying this is what it meant 2,000 years ago. It is the job of the pastor or elder in order to apply the word of God into people's lives so that it takes root. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 speaks about this. It says, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of the work. Be at peace among yourselves. Uh, The elder overseer pastors to admonish the people with the word of God. That means to warn them or correct them with the word of God. It's the overseer's job to say, hey, look, the scripture says that we're all supposed to be over here. But, But it's distinctly possible that some of you are over here. It's time to move over here to where the word of God says we're supposed to be. Because pastors, elders, overseers are supposed to teach, but teach in a way that admonishes, that applies the word of God to people's lives right here and right now. We see this keeping of doctrine, this teaching, this keeping away false teachers in Paul's instructions to the elders in Acts 20. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. Remember that for three years I did not cease night and day to admonish everyone with tears. Paul expresses in his own behavior, in his own model, what the overseer is to be about. He he teaches and admonishes them day and night. The overseer, the pastor, is to be about teaching the word of God. Day day and night, it is what uh, consumes them in their life. They love to teach the word of God. Even more than that, they're to be those who never allow the wolves, who are here, what in this passage? The wolves are false teachers. Never to allow them to take root within the church. It is the overseer's job to look at what people are teaching and say, wait a minute. That is a different gospel. That may be a a gospel of self-help. That may be a gospel of prosperity. That may be a gospel of special knowledge, which was a particular problem back then. But that is a different message. It is the overseer's job to look at teaching and say, wait a minute, you're majoring on the minors and you're minoring on the majors. That's not what we do here. It is their job to look out for the wolves who twist the word. Uh, twist the word in our false teachers. What is the primary job of an overseer? They're to lead the church and they're to teach the church. And these things have to be woven together. There's been a movement within the last 30 years within American culture, church culture to separate these things. 
Entire conferences are devoted to a form of leadership within the church that is about visionary leadership, entrepreneurial leadership. But in order for leadership to take place the way God designed it to take place, it has to be woven together with doctrinal purity and the teaching of the word. Those things can't be pulled apart or else we do damage to the church. And so we're to look for elders and overseers who lead the church and who teach the church. That is the role that they've been given. Now, how are they supposed to do it? Right? If, we, if we continue reading, what we see in 1 Peter chapter 5 is a description of how they're to lead the people of God in the next few verses. Not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. How are they to lead the church? There's three things that jumped out at me here. The first is, as those accountable to Jesus. They're to lead the church as God would have you. They're to lead as under-shepherds who are ultimately accountable to the chief shepherd. That's how they're supposed to lead the church. In the 20-whatever years that I've been a pastor, there are a number of mistakes that I have made in ministry. And if I look at the biggest mistakes that I have made in ministry, all of them are tied to me trying to please a person or please a group of people. God says, I want overseers in the church who are not primarily concerned with pleasing a person or pleasing people, but are primarily concerned with pleasing me. Who recognize that they are accountable to me in what they do. Who aren't concerned about the desires and the will of people, but are concerned about the desires and the will of God in what they do. And so the first way that overseers are to lead the churches as those who are accountable to Jesus in everything that they do. The second thing that we see here is that they're to lead as examples to the flock. That, that's actually just a quote right out of verse 3 right there. As examples to the flock. It is infuriating, discouraging to watch pastor after pastor fall out of ministry because of failing, because of some sort of moral failing. It is infuriating because it seems like every month there is a new pastor who's in the headlines because they have uh, not been faithful to their spouse. They have mishandled finances. They have mistreated the people who work under them. And I think part of what we are dealing with in this rash of pastoral failure that is going on is that we do not look for things in a pastor or overseer that we used to decades ago or that the scripture calls us to. If you read through 1 Timothy 3 or Titus chapter 1 and what it takes in order to be an overseer within the church, the list is entirely about the character of the person involved. There's nothing in there about a person's charisma or talents. It's all about the character because they're to be people who can serve as examples for us in how to live life. 
Because within the American church, attendance figures have become key metrics for measuring ministry success, you hear churches choosing pastors instead based on whether or not they have a great stage presence, whether they're easy to listen to, whether they have a wonderful sense of humor, whether they're likable. Hey guys, there's nothing wrong with being likable. There's nothing wrong with having a sense of humor. Some of us are working on getting one. (laughs) But that's never the primary motivation when we choose overseers. And if we move away someplace and we search for a church, that's never our primary motivation for why we would choose a church. Instead, it's about the character of the leaders who are involved. Hebrews 13, 7. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God, consider the outcomes of their way of life and imitate their faith. When we look at the qualifications of an overseer or an elder as listed in scripture, there is actually one giant qualification of which everything else is a subheader in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus chapter 1. And that big qualification that goes at the top of all of the list is they are to be above reproach. Those who we can look to as models in the faith. That doesn't mean perfection. One of the primary things we need to see modeled from our leaders is how they handle it when they screw up. We need to see our models, uh, we need to see our leaders model confession, repentance, reconciliation when things are broken and it's their fault. But we need to see them model that. And we need leaders who uh, we can imitate because of their way of, their, of faith. Overseers are to be those who are accountable to Jesus, those who serve as examples to the flock. And finally, as they lead, they're to lead as servants. They're to lead as servants. Our passage points out that it is possible that a person could seek to become a leader in a church for financial gain. Or a person could seek to become a leader in a church in order to get their way or to get other people to have to do things their way. And 1 Peter chapter 5 says, let that never be. Instead, those who are leaders in the church are supposed to be servants, giving their lives for those who are under their care. As the good shepherd laid down his life for the sheep, so the under shepherds are called to give up their lives for the good of the sheep. That that is the call of God upon the lives of those who want to be pastors, who want to be overseers, who want to be elders. And it is an overwhelming calling. Look at what Hebrews 13 says. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are, what, what, is, what are they doing? Keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. The leaders of the church are serving Christ by serving the church, by keeping watch over people's souls, constantly seeking to encourage Christ-likeness among the people of God. They are to be servants in all that they do. What are leaders to be in the church? They're to be humble servants, right? And so we see this H for humility in the leaders that God has called. They are to be humble people. Serving God by serving those who are a part of the church. 
but they're not the only ones who are called to humility. The next verse reminds us that not only are leaders called to humility, but followers in the church are called to be humble. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Some of your translations may say, likewise, those who are younger, be subject to those who are older. I don't think that's a great translation of this because the word that's used here is the same word for elder that has just been used for that leadership office within the church. But that does beg the question, why is he specifically addressing those who are younger to be subject to church leaders? I don't know. I don't know if you noticed, he doesn't tell us. Right? I have a couple of guesses. One I think it's distinctly possible, even likely, that most of the overseers in the church were of an older age demographic. Not all. We see Paul address Timothy, an overseer in the church, and what does he say to him? Don't let people look down on you because you're young. And so not all of them were, but as a general rule, many of the overseers were probably of an older generation. And generational divides being what they are, he addresses those who are younger and says, don't let there be divides. In humility, be in submission to those who are elders within your church. Second, it's distinctly possible that Peter is saying this because young people sometimes think they know it all. I know I did. I am so thankful for the people who put up with me and mentored me when I was 23, 24, 25, 26. I'll stop there. Because I thought I knew everything. And, and there were these older pastors and church leaders who were mentoring me and bringing me along. And I would just look at them and go, you guys are doing it all wrong. I just read six books about this. And they told me to do it different than what you're doing. Right? Because sometimes when we're younger, we haven't had an opportunity to fail all that we need to. We, we haven't recognized how hard it is to move a group of people from here over to there. And so sometimes when we're younger, we think, oh yeah, we, we know better than they do. Maybe I'm the only one, but I think it's more than just me. And so Peter says to the younger, you guys, be humble and submit to the overseers who are over you. Ultimately, in this passage, he calls all of us to humility. It doesn't matter your age. Every person is called to clothe themselves with humility, to completely cover themselves in humility because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. That phrase is used three different times in Scripture. Do you want God's opposition or his grace? That's a pretty easy choice, isn't it? And he outlines the difference here. He is opposed to those who live in pride and for self. But God gives grace to those who are humble and recognize his greatness. We are to humble ourselves. The next verse says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Sometimes we talk about circumstances humbling us, don't we? But the scriptural call is for us to humble ourselves. We, we don't wait for circumstances to do it. We are to humble ourselves by regularly worshiping God in such a way that we recognize how great and magnificent and enormous he is. 
And by contrast, how small I am. And as I am worshiping him and seeing how magnificent he is, it can't help but produce a humility in me as I realize it's all about him. Life isn't about me. And so I am able to put others ahead of myself, Philippians 2, as an expression of humility because life's all about God. It's not all about me getting what I want. The call that we see here in 1 Peter chapter 5 is for humble leaders, humble followers, humble everybody, right, in the church, right? Let's have leaders that have humility and followers that have humility. Let's all have humility and recognize that we are here because it's about God and not about us. This is so important because the passage is going to go on to tell us that there is someone out there that wants to tempt you. There's someone out there that wants to tempt you to live in pride and live in selfishness instead of living in humility and love. Who is that? Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. The devil wants to destroy you through temptation. The devil wants to present temptation before you and have you choose it because it is destructive to your soul. He wants you to think about yourself first. He wants you to live in pride. So what do we do? The devil's a, a roaring lion. He's seeking to, to devour us, to destroy us. What do we do? Well, I didn't put the whole verse up here, did I? Right. So let, let's look at the whole verse because it's going to tell us what we should do. Be sober-minded be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in the faith, knowing that the same kind of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. This is the fourth time in the book of First Peter that we have been commanded to be sober-minded or clear-minded. If we're going to resist the devil... It's only because our minds are focused, intentionally focused. And we are daily exercising, placing our minds on the things of Christ and on our Savior. We're to be clear-minded, not allowing the things of the world to creep in and become priorities in our mind, but instead devoting our mind to Jesus. We're to be watchful a word that reminded people of the job of the watcher who stood on the city wall. It was the watcher's job to watch the horizon and make sure that there were no enemies approaching. If a watcher fell asleep on the job, there was a severe punishment for that. You know what it was, right? That was an executable crime if you were a watcher who fell asleep on the wall. Because the city couldn't afford to have its enemies sneak up on it. And in the same sense, we are to be watchers when it comes to the devil and his temptations. Constantly scanning the horizons of our life to make sure that nothing is getting in close to us. And if we do see any temptations on the horizon, what are we to do? Resist. We're to resist the devil and his temptations. To not give in. We're constantly watching what, what goes in our eyes, what goes in our ears, what goes in our mind. And anytime temptation can be seen in those things, we are making sure to resist that and keep it at bay. Now, it may be that some of you are saying, wait a minute, I've tried that. I've tried to watch out for temptation and resist. And there I am giving in again and again and again. 
This is where I want to remind you that it's never enough for us to just seek not to sin. We have to be a people who are filling our mind with Christ, who are firm in our faith and in Jesus, seeking firmness of intimacy with him. It isn't enough for us to just try and remove the bad and keep it out of our life. God's constant call is for us to intentionally fill our minds and our hearts with the good things of faith in Jesus Christ. If my wife says to me after this service, hey, we got to go grocery shopping today. I'm in a lot of trouble. Because after the second service on a Sunday, I am always super hungry. Maybe you will be too. And then after I talk to a few of you, by the time we get out of here, my stomach is always like, feed me, feed me. And if I go to the grocery store in that condition and then make my way down the aisle that is filled with chips and dips and cookies, right? there's just going to be stuff going in the cart like this as I go along. I know because I've done it before. But if I go home and I eat a, a good and filling lunch and then I go to the grocery store, that temptation is at a very different level in my life. And I'm filled with good stuff at that point. And I'm not nearly as tempted to grab those aisles filled with cookies and chips and dips and everything and just throw it in the cart. It is never enough for us to simply watch and try and resist. We have to be a people who are clear-minded, seeking Jesus with our minds and our hearts and making sure that we are firm in our faith, firm in relationship with him. We're to seek after him in what we do. Right? We need to fight the enemy. As we look at the last couple of verses of our passage, I want to do so in celebration this morning because we have a fight on our hands. But the last couple of verses in our passage remind us that, that fight is temporary. There's coming a day of ultimate victory for you if you are a follower of Jesus. And so verses 10 and 11 say this, And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Remember the temptations that you face, the hardships that you face, they are temporary. We have been told again and again in this book, we're, we're exiles here, we're sojourners. This isn't where our citizenship is. This isn't our permanent home. And because of the work that Jesus has done in our lives, we will ultimately be victorious, restored, confirmed, strengthened, and established in him. You can count on it. You may ask, well, what if I'm not strong enough to get there? Does it, does it say you're doing these things? Are you restoring yourself? Are you establishing yourself? No, that's, that's not what the passage says. Who's doing that in your life? Right? He's doing it. God is doing that. God is restoring you. God is confirming you. God's strengthening you. And ultimately, God is establishing you. And is God strong enough to see this through? He is the one to whom all dominion and power belong. He's strong enough. And you are in his hands. And because of that, you will ultimately be victorious. 
you will ultimately see a, a time when there is no more temptation, no more hardship, and no more sin. Why do we have that guarantee? We have that guarantee because of what Jesus did on the cross on our behalf. And I want to remember that together by taking these elements. So would you take out these elements with me? If you didn't have a chance to grab them, they're on the table outside in the commons. You can grab them there. And as we take these elements, we do so remembering the one who has purchased our victory. This whole chapter has been about the need for us as a church to be humble. Well, ultimately, you guys, we follow a humble Savior into this. Philippians chapter 2, verse 8 says, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Jesus is our leader in humility. He is the ultimate expression of humility as God in the flesh went to the cross on our behalf so that we could be a forgiven and redeemed humble community. And I want to invite you in remembrance to take out the little piece of bread that's in your packet. As we take this, we remember Jesus who in humility gave his body so that we might be forgiven. Would you eat this all now in remembrance of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? Again, in humility, our Savior shed his blood so that our sins might be forgiven. If you have placed your trust in Jesus and your sins have been forgiven, would you drink this cup in remembrance of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? Father, we are so thankful and so grateful for your goodness. Uh, we, we do yell out with praise and adoration for you, recognizing your good plan to send your son so that he might take our sins and our punishment and we might in turn receive the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ, credited to our account so that we might be declared right in your sight. Lord, we're so thankful. Jesus, we are so thankful for your willingness to come to humbly give your life for our sake. Holy Spirit, we give you thanks that you are the great guarantor, the one who is our seal, so that we know that it is God who will establish us, that you are the one who gives us ultimate victory and it is guaranteed in you. And Spirit, we thank you for that seal. We thank you for that guarantee that you place upon our lives. Now, God, we, we worship you with our whole hearts. With everything that we have, we cry out to you, recognizing your amazing goodness. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand with me and let's worship together.